Hello and welcome to another episode of RyePod, the arts and entertainment podcast from the Rye Arts Festival. So I have two people to introduce you to today. One is our guest, drummer, songwriter and founder member of jazz funk band Level 42, Phil Gould. And the other is Alison Moncrief Kelly, who will be a regular host here on RyePod. You'll be hearing her in conversation with a few people this season. Alison and Phil were actually students together at the Royal Academy of Music, and catching up after all these years, they had a few funny stories to reminisce over. We also get to hear about the early days of Level 42 and Phil's path to success through those first albums, certain pet peeves he has about audience behaviour at concerts these days, and his other varied interests like travelling and reading biographies and history. We learn about his passion for a cappella singing and how politics influences his songwriting. He also gives us a little tease about the album he's working on in lockdown. So, without further ado, it's over to Alison. Phil, I first encountered you, of course, at the Royal Academy of Music. Um, I think I was about 17. And um, my abiding memory of you is that you sat in the corner of the canteen reading a book by Herman Hesse. Yeah, okay. And um, somebody in the, the first year said to me, oh, oh, that's Phil Gould. He's he's the guy who's playing on that single that's out at the moment called Pop Music. So this, yeah. this dates it as being, I mean, I guess 1979 because yeah. that was the number one, wasn't it? And, and I wondered how on earth that happened because it seems like a fairly big stretch from the Royal Academy of Music. Well, it actually, I, I didn't actually play on that particular track, but I played on the album and, um, and I... I I was just one of those lucky breaks because my brother was uh, working for MCA Records. They just needed a drummer to go and do TV shows. And that first rehearsal in Notting Hill, there was Wally Badru there, Gary Barnacle was there, and uh, who's a sax player. And, and I don't look back on my life realise how blessed I was to meet people like that in a certain moment. I think I was 21 or something. Wally was such an instrumental figure in my life from then on. You know, we we just were like brothers. And, and everything we did from that moment on was, you know, with Level 42, he was part of. So it's incredibly fortuitous uh, meeting. So I did all the TV shows and then ended up going to Montreux that summer to record the album. Um, crazy. Because the previous summer I was doing holiday camps, you know. I was, I was doing Warner St. Clair and <laughs> playing all that nonsense, you know, like Valita St. Bernard, quick little, you know, swinging a little quick step. And, and it, you know, with my, it was like having a lobotomy every night. I could feel my brain just <laughs> melting. And, yes. But then, you know, but that was a good way to make money to be able to pay for the lessons and all that, you know. But from out of the, the M situation, we did a, an album in Montreal. The following year, we did an album in uh, Eastbourne, a second album. And Mark, Mark King was involved in that. And then out of that, um, my, you know, I met Mike at the Guildhall School of Music when I was doing part-time lessons there. My brother was in London. So we, we just coalesced around rehearsing at the Guildhall. And out of that, with Wally there, we just formed this thing into a band. And when we, when we were asked to play a, a track as Level 42, the first recording, we thought we were going to find a singer. We didn't even know anybody could sing. You know, it was all that kind of... It just. And we, we did a single that sold uh, 3,000 copies, and then we... Did, and then we got licensed to Polydor with that single that sold 70,000 copies, and we got a five-album deal, you know, it's like... That's incredible. That really is. Absolutely ridiculous. At that point, I mean, uh, the whole business of being at the Royal Academy of Music, um, you, you tell some very good stories around that. You went there to study with James Blades, who was one of the most famous percussionists of his yeah. era. Um, uh, but tell us about that, because that's really fascinating stuff. Well, I, I was flying on a wing and a prayer, really, with what I knew about that work, because I'd only... 
I mean, I was very lucky because when I started doing Summer Seasons and I, I met this incredible musician who's sadly no longer with us called Bob Howarth. And he taught and studied in Berkeley and California. I was a serious musician. And he just grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and sat me down in front of a piano and said, right, you're going to be a proper musician. And within two and a half years, I was at the Academy. You know, I did A-level music in a year. I got to grade five with him kicking my backside about 18 months, you know. But when I got in, I, my my ear wasn't so good. I mean, I had really good hands. I'd been playing percussion in, you know, youth orchestras and, and, and the pit and the amateur operatic stuff, you know. But I was not a timpanist, and I got really found out in my first term, and it was pretty hard to, to read a conductor's downbeat, you know, where the upbeat was. I just was really lost following those guys, you know. I mean, I had some terrible things. Cause I, I, I remember the last performance I did before I left the island was with the orchestra on the island when I, at Cal's uh, middle school or high school where I was studying A-level music. And I, I destroyed Carmine Verana because I, I did the gong in the gap before the last section rather than on the downbeat. And it just destroyed the performance. And I had things like that because when the conductor went like that, I just saw the, you know, the baton flick at the end. I thought that's, that looks like a downbeat to me, you know. Oh, I was terrible. But, you know, I was, I was about that time, having been playing drums for four or five years, I was used to metronomic time, but I just didn't have a feel for the, the, the elasticity of, of classical time at that point. You know, it got you know, later I got a bit better at it. I mean, I, we did Benjamin Britten's Requiem, and there was one cymbal crash I had to do, one flipping cymbal crash. And, the, you know, I stood up there with these great big cymbals and missed it and, like, <laughs> The conductor's pointing at me even, you know, and I still missed it. What, what can you do? You're standing there with symbols. All you can do is, like, just do a little shh and put them down again, you know. It's, like, yeah. humili- humiliating. So in terms of, like, playing ranked music, I think I did enough of that at the Holy Council. In terms of ritual humiliation, I, I did go through a lot of that at the Academy. But, you know, having said that, I met James Blades, who sort of basically sort of protected me through those the two years I was there, because once once the band happened, I, I just left, you know, of course, I just, I'm going to go on and do that now. But like, it was an incredible two years. I learned so much. And even though I was kind of fighting the system a bit, I I took everything I could from it. And in terms of what, how I play drums, I really applied to drumming those concepts of giving a note the full value and before you do the next one. It sounds a bit simplistic, but it's incredible how many drummers you hear want to rush the downbeat because they don't think the last hi-hat beat means that much. So they get they get they want to get on with it, you know? because the thing about weird thing about drumming and percussion generally is that you know if you play a, a, a piano and you hit the note you go ding off you know you have a quarter note and off but you, you hit a snare drum it just does that but you still have to feel you still have to think of that time you know you have to build in the time component and it's something you have to really work at a lot of those concepts uh, came from the academy and later one of my drumming heroes Steve Jordan said the exact same thing he went through the classical world and he said he learned the exact same concepts of note note values and beat placement and time and and also tone production you know like as a young drummer you might do a fast single stroke roll around the the toms and it's one all the way around you know but when you play an 18 inch timpani there's a certain role that you have to do to keep a sustained note and on a 30, 36 inch timpani it's a lot slower to have a sustained note and you apply those kind of concepts to drumming and you can open yourself up to much more musicality because it's like uh, you're not choking the lower drums by playing too fast all that kind of stuff so i think Oh, you know what? Yeah, one other thing for the academy for me, because if we were to do the Rite of Spring, I'm, I wouldn't do the main timpani part or something. I'd do maybe one, a third one or something. But like the thing is, you'd have a bit of time, and I, and I wasn't able to keep up. Beyond, honestly, I was, I was, I was lost. You know, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Five. I, I wasn't able to follow. You know, conductor in four, four, let alone 
what was going on in that. But, you know, to be in the middle of that sound was just something I'll never forget. And Benjamin Britten's Requiem and these kind of these pieces, to be in the middle of it all was was just, you know, I felt the electricity of that moment. So I have a lot of time for that world. And, and I know how hard it is to, to be really good in that world. You know, it's not, it's really, really difficult. I mean, you have to master the instrument. I suppose that's the thing. But um, I, I agree with you about Rite of Spring, incidentally. One of my friends who was also at the Academy but went off into the jazz world once described Rite of Spring as the earliest concept album ever. And I, I've never forgotten yeah. that because I, I think you're right. It's being in the middle of it, that huge sound. Um, fantastic. Um, so anyway, after that, you went off and you were in the band and you got your five album deal. Um, yeah. So it makes it all sound very easy. I bet it wasn't really, but... No, we were incredibly lucky, you know, unbelievable. Well, on the other hand, you were also incredibly good and very successful. T- tell us a bit about the first album and throwing that together. I was When I left the other world, I was considered a bit of a hippie, a bit of a space cadet, you know, kind of drifting around, floating life, you know. But I, I when I look back at how, how driven I was, how we all driven we all I mean, I went up to North London because I, I heard this guy was putting out 12 inches and I begged him to come and hear us. And he came down and said, well, I'll record that. And then I borrowed the money off Robin from the M Project to, to hire a studio. And I, I borrowed the money to fly Wally over you know, for the recording. It was like all of us were like uh, – really going for it. And but, you know, at that point, me and Mark were, and my brother were sleeping on my elder brother, John's floors at this point, um, working in a carpet factory. But we just, we were just in that moment in British music history, we the post-punk where every record shop had a label um, and, and major re- labels were struggling to sort of keep up with the creativity that was going on in Britain at that time. Because it was, you look at the number ones in the late seventies, early eighties, it's, it's, ast- it's astonishing, you know, the kind of level of uh, creativity in pop music or rock music, but we we were just there at the right time, and we we were you know we just put put this thing out. There was a scene, a Brit folk scene. We the first gig was a students' union bar at the Guildhall, and we got shut down after three numbers by the police. Because, but that was our first gig. I think the next gig we did was the the Hammersmith Palais, just twelve hundred people with a, you know a Brit funk all all you know with all the Brit funk bands. So we just walked into the scene and we didn't even know that that, that was happening. And we were you know talking about being in the right place at the right time. We're very lucky. Of course, now young musicians struggle to get a single out with a label, let alone a five album deal. So, and, and we had I think the, the deal was three albums uh, plus two options. So they couldn't get rid of us for the first three years. We knew that, um, and we just got on with it and. We yeah, I mean we had something and we worked really really hard and we built an audience. So even at the point where we weren't selling massive amounts, uh, we had this audience, you know. Yeah. So when you started singing, did 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 all of you sort of in in the band? Did you all start singing or did you kind of you know share it out between you or how did that work? Because well, the first the first track we did with uh, Elite Records, this one single, we. Um, we thought we'd do the backing track and get a singer in, but at the end of the, you know, towards the end of the evening, uh, we all had to go singing it. And my brother and myself, I don't have a good lead lead voice. It takes a long time. I'm not very strong at all. Mike Lindo's got an amazing voice. He's very uh, great musician, composition student. He's got his incredible ear. Um, uh, he did percussion and composition at the Guildhall. But Mark had this voice, you know, um, and then he and then he put it out, and then all of a sudden, I had to sit Mark down in a pub in Wimbledon at some at some point because he was he was always wanting to be a drummer. And when we left the Isle of Wight, I was a drummer, he was a drummer. And then all of a sudden, I used to go down to Macari's when I was at the Academy on Charing Cross Road, and he'd be there working at Macari's and picking up a bass. 
And I'd be looking at him going, you sound really good, you know. And then we, and he didn't, he didn't want to go with it at first, but after we did the track and then he was a singer on a record and we were offered this deal, he was going, I don't want to, I don't want to do this, you know. So that idea that you don't, maybe plan A isn't going to work or they might, you might not even have a plan. You don't know what's going to happen, but you just take the opportunity that is presented, you know. And so we went for it and, um, then it, we kept going for it. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't think it makes it interesting because we're all, I think particularly with Mike, Mike's influence was great because he, he did, he grew, he went to Cheatham's in Manchester and he did go through the, the system and was immersed in classical music. So he could, you know, drop some Messi out on us or some Sibelius or something. And he, he was really very knowledgeable. And that, that, all that came together in our music making, you know, all the kind of concepts that we learned along the way was there uh, from day one. So um, at what point did you get to the end of the three albums before the opportunity of doing the option, optional two others? What sort of stage was that? Well, we, kept, we, we were having silver records, so we, I guess the, they were making money at that time, the label, so they weren't going to get rid of us. And we were, we, at this point, we were selling out these venues. We were sent to, on the third album, we were sent to America to record with Two Guys from Earthman and Fire. That was the big push, you know. But they wanted, right, you've got to come back with some hits, guys. And we, we went there and we found... Um, uh, when we arrived, there's like rooms full of songwriters, like they do in LA. There's six songwriters, you know. Gonna, here's the top line guy. Here's the harmony guy. Here's the lyric, you know. And and we tried it a couple of times, and we said to uh, Larry Donovan, Dean White, the two Earth and Fire guys, said, "Look, we can't do this, you know. We've got to do our own thing." And and to their credit, they absolutely supported us. So, okay, what what can you do then? And we came up with a a track that became a single, that became a top ten hit. So we got away with it, you know. But like it was it was it was almost the point where if we'd have said um, okay, we'll do whatever you want. We'll be because we want commercial success. Then we probably would have lost our soul at that point, and that would have been the end of the band. But we didn't, and we came up with a record that I'm really, really, really proud of. And it was recorded in America. It has that sheen to it. You know, the air around the mics in LA is different to London. But it's, it's, it's I'm very proud of that moment because we, yeah, we, 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 we had to find ourselves. We had to prove ourselves, and, and we did. And we came back. We had a gold record. So then, then the label picked up the options. Okay, which 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 song was that? Which one of the of the hits was it? Well, there's a song called "The Sun Goes Down," the third record, which was a, t- a top ten. And there's a track on that album called "I Want Eyes," which I wrote with Mark, and I I you know I wrote uh, with the Juno sixty keyboard, and he had the bass, and I'm so proud of it because it's the best thing we ever did. And you know, Mark and I had problems later personally because we sort of did fall out, but at a certain moment we were very close, and we we, we wrote a lot of tunes just him, him and I. You know, you know, the, at least the DNA of a lot of tunes, and it was it was amazing to be in the studio that night when he sang it with like three guys from Earthman of Fire. There was a, a you know some valley, incredible Valley Girl Barbara. The tape up was just a wonderful Californian girl, and all these people in the studio crowding in, and Mark sang it. And and you know, four or five, you know, six years earlier, I was I was you know five years old, sleeping on floors. Before that, I was on a holiday camp. You never can imagine being in a situation like that when you're starting out or struggling and these don't even know how to, you know, if you ever make a record, you know, so it was just an incredible moment. And I think that's the, for me, I mean, success came, a lot of success came later, but that was the moment where, you know, I really felt like uh, I was, we were saying something, you know, cause the lyrics meant something and people were really moved by it. And, and you don't have an opportunity like that and just, just sit down Let's have a track by like Tina Turner by Friday kind of thing. It, it, you've got to, you've got to try and be the, be an artist in that moment. You have to be, approach it artistically and and be be brave Uh, otherwise it's just i know you just it's just lame isn't it you know 
Well, it's interesting too. I mean, Earth, Wind and Fire, kind of like the royalty of jazz funk and, and uh, you know, the, just one of the biggest names ever. To be with them, that must have been a moment of realising you were being taken very seriously. Yeah, it was. But, you know, their, their methodology was very different. They, they would go out and find hits and they would see what was going on in the clubs and go and find a song that would fit that because they, 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 they were very success-orientated. So that we were coming from a slightly different place because although what we were doing was considered – uh, you know, uh, you know, derived from James Brown and TV Wonder and all the things that we'd grown up on and loved, we were actually in a little bit of a different place because we also had classical elements. I'd grown up on Gentle Giant as much as I'd grown up on, uh, you know, James Brown and TV Wonder. So we we had lots of other elements coming through, and they allowed that to happen without squashing it into an R and B uh, box. You know, later it was a problem because we we tried. They tried to release uh, that album in the states on Polygram first, and they would send our picture around to the urban radio stations, but not with our picture, trying to pretend we were a black band. And they would because we're a mixed race band, you know. And then they would send the record around to the white pop stations with no record, trying to pretending we were a white band, you know. It was just like wild, you know. And and that's when I was really struck by the idea of. Uh, how hard it is to break out of a box and how we managed to do it. And, and we didn't let go of that. And later on, I felt with the commercial success we had, we may have put ourselves in our own box, you know. But at that point, we could write about anything and we were able to say what we wanted to say. And not many people get given that opportunity. Or, 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 but we earned it, perhaps, because we'd been working solidly and building an audience. And, and we felt that was the thing we should be doing, you know. Yes. And then after the three albums, what what came next? Did you did you make the other two optional ones that were stuck on the end of the deal? Yeah, we did. We did. A, the thing was, the fourth album, the band was really having a problem at that point. You know, it looked like we might not make it to the you know to, to the recording, and we got we worked with an amazing, uh, legendary uh, engineer producer called Ken Scott. He did Bowie and all these things, and we didn't really have the the best songs, but we pulled it off, and we we made an album that was pretty soulful in the end, but. We were struggling by this point uh, as a collective. Um, the fifth album was a real breakthrough because it had a major hit on it. But uh, we uh, we were at war during the making of it. It was really horrible. It's like you know the you know people tell you the stories of the making of rumors, but people aren't talking to each other and things like that. And it was a bit like that between me and Mark at that point. It's really sad, but. It seems to happen, though. I mean, it's it's very similar in the classical music world. I mean, you hear stories of the world's most successful string quartets that then end up going off on tours and actually all staying in different hotels and being unable to function except in complete silence other than when they play. It's so commonplace. It happens in business. And the thing that the only thing that will stop you from falling or succumbing to this nightmare is, is a communication. And a communication shut down between me and various members of the band, and we didn't understand each other where we were coming from. We, if we'd have talked about it, that we would have understood the point, each other's point of view. But we saw what we were doing as differently, and uh, so it became very difficult. And it's quite weird because the songs on World Machine, well, you know, that album went on to sell a lot, and something about you is the, the single was the most enduring, successful track that we, you know, the song that we had. But a lot of the lyrics are all about the, what was going on. Mark would, I would, I would hand Mark the lyrics, and he would just sing it, and he didn't know that I was actually speaking to him. Uh, he may have got it later, but it was kind of weird. But if that's what fuels the process, that, that you can't just go and write about, you know, it's a lovely day or hey baby or something. If you're feeling that kind of <laughs> no. that, that kind of pain, you know, because it was really horrible to be in a situation like that. Must be agony. Well, it was agony, and it was like you know the thing is it became really successful, and then. 
Uh, at that point, I probably should have left because the communication was so bad. But we had another successful period. Then I then I did leave. But that album it was. I think we we arrived as songwriters on that album. I think we did pretty well. And then we wrote some good stuff afterwards. But it was over as a band, really. But you know, we I'd, I'd been playing with my brother since I was fifteen. I left when I was thirty. You know, and I've been around those guys for you know half my life. By the time I left, so it's, it's not like you know. Well, it's it's more than a, a, a the the life of the group too, isn't it? Because you'd left yeah. the Isle of Wight, and you said rather tellingly earlier on it was about getting away from the island, and it sounds like it was just a complete life evolution, you know, going somewhere and starting again, and that makes everybody different people. So you're not where you started in any way or function. Yeah, and I lost my brother last year, and it, it, you know, before that happened, we were in a place of gratitude and thankfulness. But you, it really makes you sit down and think about all those things, and you realise that. I mean, who knows what's going on when they're twenty three, twenty four? But of course, you're ju- you're just trying to make it work, and and you're 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 fighting really for survival. And it's like, uh, I think it's a lot of things you have to feel and what you have to do as a musician trying to make it. You have to harness quite a lot of unpleasant things. Like if you're if you're at the headline band on a festival, if you don't go on stage at the end of that day and just destroy everybody else, you're not doing your job. So you have to go out there with a certain mentality of being the best thing, and you have to kill it and you know, take no prisoners. It's not yeah. a very it's not a very kind of charming or positive attitude to have. But you have to find a way to be able to do that and you have to summon up all your demons and energy and give blood and everything to be to be that and it's it's um i think in the middle of all that stuff we we all we all got damaged by each other in the in the various um you know the perfectionism you know if you if i drop a stick on stage i get a look you know if mike missed if mike missed a keyboard note he'd get a look from me you know we were very very competitive and very demanding of each other and i think there was probably probably went a bit too far, but I think you might find that wherever, if you find that at the highest levels of classical music, you know what it, I mean, of course, when you get to the level of, of like uh, soloists and classical, classical it's, it's the, the demands on people and the scrutiny is off the scale, isn't it? Particularly for young musicians coming through, the one note out of place in a recital is like considered, you know, a, a heinous crime, you know. Well, I sometimes think it's actually the, the people who are at the peak of the profession and are a bit older that really get the strain because, of course, people arrive there expecting them to be at the top of their game. And yeah. if you've lived with that for 10, 20, 30 years, uh, a lot with singers, of course, you know, because they've got to live with the fact that the voice is not entirely a constant force and it might change with age and... And people have come all that way to hear the top B flat, and if it's not there, they go away, sort of huffing and puffing. I, I think well, the stress yeah. is is the same, probably. It's just differently expressed. I tell you what, the the one place, one aspect which differs from that world with, say, if what we were doing was described as pop music or rock music or contemporary music, was the more hits you have, the more success you have, the less performance counts because. You, 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 the opening bars of a really major song for your audience, they're just on their feet making all God's noise, you know, so it's like they're up cheering and singing along. And your performance levels can drop quite radically and it doesn't matter because it's a, it's a, it's a celebration of what you've done rather than analysing a performance. So it's very different. I mean, obviously the classic case of that was the Beatles, you know, when they were played Chase Stadium, nobody could hear what they were doing. But, it, you know, they just were there to celebrate their, their, their love of this this cultural explosion, you know. But with us, with us, the last by, by by 1987, the last five songs that we were playing were hits, and so we had this raucous noise, and uh, and we sounded really good because we were really tired. We playing together for a long time, but our performance levels in the early years, we had to fight for every bar because we had to prove ourselves every single night. But when you have a um, 
a massive hit, then you, you've, you've established that. And, and then there's this moment where you open, you know, that song begins and people people start making this noise. So it's an odd one. It's not like the classical world at all in that respect. No, that you, no, no, absolutely. You wouldn't you wouldn't get people singing along to a Mozart quartet in the Wigmore exactly. Hall. <laughs> you can't even clap in between numbers. No. Know? Well, you know, it's interesting, that one, because I think things are changing. But I do think, well, I like to think so. I mean, it's a big debate, isn't it? We're, we're always being sort of lobbied with different ways of delivering classical music. But I think that, um, you know, the idea of people playing in the great outdoors or the picnic, listening to opera or music or whatever, classical music, it does happen. But I don't think you have that same kind of massive force of explosive energy that you get with something like, you know, I went to BST at Hyde Park last year to see Stevie Wonder. And like you say, actually, I came to see Stevie Wonder, but I heard an awful lot of very drunk people <laughs> singing along behind oh, me. Oh, God, yeah. I, I refuse to go to outdoor gigs because like, people talk around you all the time. I felt like an old curmudgeon, but I, 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 I actually love that about classical, the classical world, that you would sit there and people really pay attention. Yes. And it's, it's far too much of uh, obviously filming and lots of iPhones and Facebooking mm-hmm. stuff going on in contemporary concerts. And even I went to see one of my favourite contemporary artists, Bon Iver, or the group Bon Iver with Justin Vernon. At the, uh, he did a run at the the Apollo, um, and people were getting up and getting drinks the whole time. And I like you, I think one guy got up about eight times in my run. I go, this never used to happen. You know, people used to be focused on the music, not like it's a backdrop to you having a night out kind of thing. You know. Yes. I mean that's that's maybe for Ronnie's or a jazz club, but this this is a concert, and I waited a long time to see that band, so I was a bit mad with people, you know. So if I if I'm if I'm to get mad with people, I better just stick to watching concerts online. Or, but yeah, the life the live thing it's tricky. I think it's a very good point you're making though, because there is a a huge thing about respecting the people who've worked really hard to to get to that point and are, are actually performing to you, and the communication should be there. And if that's not happening, that's that's not very respectful to the performers. Um, I went to I went, a friend of mine plays with Hans Zimmer. She's a wonderful bass player, and she plays. I went to see Hans Zimmer, and the lady next to me was within two numbers was on Facebook and with her iPhone. And I'm going. I just said you can't do this. You know, I'm sorry, but this is this is crazy. You know, this is an amazing concert with all these musicians, and and uh, you really need to stop doing that right now because you know. So she actually she did, but just the idea that she would even do that. You know, after two two tracks. There's been one or two very well-publicised events in the classical world in the last couple of years where conductors have stopped concerts because somebody's mobile phone went off. Yeah, yeah. And I think increasingly people feel enabled to do that because, uh, you know, why shouldn't we protest if somebody's being, as it were, disrespectful? Seems seems perfectly reasonable. I think so. I mean, I think when Kent, you know, when uh, Kate Bush did that run of shows, which sadly I couldn't get a ticket for, she she went out every night. Uh, you know, to, to talk to everybody and so, say, look, we really want to have this experience just between us. So please, no recording. And then she, I think they, people respected her and, and, and respected her wishes, you know. Yeah. So I think it's just making it plain what the vibe is. You know, this is, we want to have this amazing experience together. And drinking and, and you know, phones and all that stuff doesn't, you know, doesn't help you no. achieve that. What else do you, do you enjoy doing, Phil, apart from playing your drums and piano and the the well-tempered clavier and you're a reader I think aren't you you read books a lot I'm trying to be a reader I'm, I'm actually uh uh quite embarrassed to say I haven't read a lot of fiction over the last few years reading a lot of histories and, and biographies and I, I love biographies um, and I just do reading about people's lives but I'm trying to get back more into fiction because I know that uh, well I, I feel as a lyricist as a songwriter I I feel a little bit like 
it's too personal. And I've I had a very difficult year. I lost my brother a year ago, and and there was a lot of things came out of that. And I feel like I need to. Uh, I've expressed those things, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity. I've got this album that's um, coming out soon, but I really feel I need to. I would like to try and you know evolve as a storyteller, you know. And sometimes you need to maybe just do some research and just look at the way other people do it. And um, yeah, so I'm reading various things at the moment. I mean, like, I, I've actually got a pile of books by the bed of, of classics that I, I really, really need to, you know, Dickens and things like this. I really feel bad, you know, because I've, all I've done is read. Um, my, my favorite historian is Barbara Tuchman, you know, AJ, AJ P. Taylor, people like that. So I, I just keep going back to those things. And um, the only two things I was any good at at school, because I wasn't doing arts from 13, for some reason, they put me in a science course. The only two things I was good at was English and history, and I just connect with those things. But as a, yeah, so I, there's that. I have my friend, I travel quite a lot, and usually it's music related, but I do go to Vienna and I go abroad and hang with people, and I don't. I don't go to pubs. I don't do. You know, I don't don't go out drinking or carousing. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing <laughs> carousing, but I, I I tend to sort of just enjoy the life that I have as a musician and the people that I know through that world. I'm I'm connected to some wonderful people around the world that are, and I hang with them and I go and we do stuff together when we're not making music. It's kind of that. That's my social life as well, you know. So what is it about? I mean, I think Vienna is the most wonderful city, incidentally. So I'm not questioning why you would want to go and live there, but I'm just interested about, you know, what is it about it that appeals to you most particularly? I have some really good friends there. And Sarah Shearer, who's a wonderful actress and director, has directed the video that we have for the first single. It's just incredible, the people that are there. So I love the city. One of my best friends, Matthias Jakosic, I can't say his name probably. He's a great musician. I've worked with him a number of times. So there are people that I want to work with. But also, musically, I've I've never been to Croatia. I've never been to uh, the East. You know, it's, it's terrible to say, but I've never been to Romania, Bulgaria, and I love the music from that part of um, you, you know e- Europe. So I would like to position myself in Vienna for a period of time where I can explore that. You know, go in and explore. Uh, I was looking at what was I was going through my CDs yesterday, and I found uh, was it uh, Le Mystère de Voix Bulgare? You know, the the Bulgarian women's choir, women's choir, the radio choir. Have you ever heard that music? No, is it like the the women's equivalent of the the uh, what is it the Soviet Red Choir or whatever it is that they the Red Chorus do they call it something like that something um, like that yeah I got into them maybe in the late eighties early nineties and it's just the most incredible I, I mean I one of the things I, I love above you know like I'm absolutely obsessed about above is is a cappella singing or uh can, you know like group singing like um. I'm obsessing about uh, the the Ron Hickling singers. It was like a, a group of singers on the West Coast of America in the late '60s to the early '80s, who were like the wrecking crew uh, of, of singers who were on all these records, you know. And they, um, you would have heard them on records like, you know, the Mash theme, uh, yes. Suicide, Suicide is Painless, or South American Getaway and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And they, they. I just love that, you know, so voices. Uh, I've actually got a little bit of this kind of stuff. Me and Mike did some Ron Hickling kind of things on, on my album because I just love vocal harmony, whether it's a cappella or, um, you know, on, in music. And I just think what Eastern European vocal harmony, you know, in Romania and uh, that part of the world, you know, pro, you know, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, it's just extraordinary. It's incredible. I, I love it. So I need to learn more and, uh yeah, and maybe just change the change the scene, you know. I mean, I love London. I love London, but it uh, the end is more manageable somehow, less crazy somehow. 
Well, and we live in troubled times, of course, and and that's an interesting thing because I think you're quite politically motivated, aren't you? I mean, reading your Twitter posts and yeah. things, it it strikes me that that you're you, you're a strong voice in politics. Well, I have opin- opinions like anybody, you know. I don't have. I I, I like to think. I could ask ask some questions, and I I tr- try and sort of battle a way to formulate some answers. But I just want to ask some questions, you know. And that's the way we looked at the songwriting as well as that we you know, I was never never preached to people, but just to raise some issues, you know, from time to time. And I and I was struck when I was coming through and you know, trying to becoming a song, you know, trying to learn how to do this by how many. Um, you have these politicised uh, musicians, and, and from Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, people talking about these issues. It wasn't off limits as it was maybe in a, a generation earlier. And uh, I felt it was an obligation to try and you know talk about the environment or or or, or peace or something like that, or, or you know war or something to, to actually try and raise the question. Not that I had ever thought I had any answers, but just to have a discussion about it, you know. And I got into a lot of trouble with the label. Actually, uh, they they were very upset with me on the fourth album because I did a lot of that, and I was I was writing you know books inspired by Arthur Kessler, dialogue with death, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I I know, but Sting was right. You know, Sting had a number one album in 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 America at the time based on uh, Carl Jung's concept, you know, synchronicity. And I think uh, the Ghost in the Machine was a, t- a book by Arthur Kessler. So I mean. You know, Peter, people like Peter Gabriel and, and P, artists like Sting were, were, were using literary references uh, across the board. So I felt like we could explore that world and get into politics. And of course, you have, you know, it's Vietnam War, then you have uh, the, you know, the 80s with bombings in Syria, and then you have, like, you know, Iraq and things like that. So I don't think any anybody who's trying to be creative can, you know, just try and operate within a s- small world. You have to be open to everything. And, and, and if people are, uh, get fed up with that stuff, I, I can quite understand, but I, I I just don't think we can ignore it. And you know, it's wonderful to. I mean, one of my favorite, obviously, the great one of the greatest pianists of all time, Daniel Barenboim, was one of my favorite classical musicians from a very early age because because I got into Beethoven through uh, you know the film Fantasia. My mum was buying me Barenboim all the time and you know, recordings of, of of Beethoven pieces and stuff. And he was very vocal about politically, you know, and like like a lot of rock musicians, he he goes and says stuff about these things. He's not. It's not a shrinking violet, you know. I, I, I feel that we're all obligated in some way to have a discussion. Uh, if you say I know what the answer is, then you've got a problem. You, you, that's ridiculous. But if you can't talk about these things, then I think, I think you, you know, or at least try and have a conversation, then you're not doing a job. Um, is that one of the things that you find inspiration for in writing your current material, or, or is it just, you know, random things that inspire you to write now? I feel uh, I tried with the recent work. There was a, there's a track. This first single is a track called "Beautiful Wounds," and the idea of that was came from a conversation I had with uh, a very good friend of mine, actually Robin Scott, the the M guy. Again, we we're walking around the, the national uh, the tape, and he was talking about Francis Bacon and the beautiful wounds and how Francis Bacon with these these images of cuts and slices of you know this this metaphor for the damage that's done to us and the idea that we go through life and we can't escape that damage but what you do with that damage that happens to you along the way that you you either internalize that or you, you take drugs or you try and suppress it or you if you're lucky enough to have an outlet like i feel i have to, i can express it through music i can write about it you know so it just feels like that is something that uh, is um I'm really grateful for, but I need. To, I know I need to take further because I have been through a lot of re- really strange things in the last twenty years, like really 
quite quite difficult things and, and I feel it's very personal the way I write at the moment. I think I need to move beyond that. But like in terms of what happened the last year, I had to really wake up to, uh, you know, ha- you know, and a lot of, and there's actually a song on the album which I've just called Thank You. I mean, it's just no, no other word to describe what I'm trying to say. It's an appreciation of all those people that, that were there to inspire me. The first, uh, the musician, I joined my brother's band when I was 15. There was a musician called Nigel Longhurst. And, and you know, I could have joined a band where they were just dropping Black Sabbath on me or something every week. But this guy was dropping Vaughan Williams, Return to Forever, Fairpool Convention, you know, the Incredible String Band. It was like one, one di- he was so diverse, Nigel. He was incredible. It's, we sadly lost him a few years ago, very, very young when he died. But but I was around him, and then I was around Bob Howarth. You know, my pianist used to around Bob Howarth. I was around these musicians that were just so open. I was so lucky to be um, in that situation of um, openness. And maybe t- I never went back to the island to thank Bob Howarth. We were so bit, we were moving so fast in my twenties. I never went back to say you know thank you. And like he died when I was about twenty five. You know, and I suddenly heard about it, and I hadn't. I we was just up and running. So when you're in your twenties, maybe you don't think that way. But I realised how lucky I've been in the, the breaks and the people that I've met, you know, I've been very, very fortunate and had an incredible life, you know, it's not, but it's been, you know, there's a lot of problems, but then you, you go through things and you hear stories. And one of the great things about social media to me, for me is to be constantly reminded every day what people are struggling with, because you hear these incredible stories of struggles, survivals, people dying of, of coronavirus, you know, right yeah. now, you know, yeah. and, you, and it puts, and you just have to try constantly to put everything you're going through in context. Cause yeah. You know, I'm I'm blessed beyond belief, even with my own particular struggles. Way, way blessed beyond belief. You know, and it, in in ways that a lot of people can't imagine. You know, so it's trying to be trying to be not to dismiss your own pain because you can't you can't drive around that stuff. You know, but it's to it's just to have it in perspective so you can live life with you know with con- some sort of contentment because in not at one point i thought i had to constantly be having almost like a nervous breakdown or to write anything decent you know and that's like that's just nonsense isn't it you don't want to it's just rubbish i don't know it's it's very interesting there is a, a saying i once heard which is that happiness writes white and that stuck with me a long time because i think you know this idea that you've got to be a very tortured person to make it as an artist um is just because historically that's tended to be the case but yeah someone like Beethoven wrote some of his most sublime music when he was absolutely at his most tortured and going yeah. deaf and really sort of in the depths of despair so I don't know I suppose it's whatever switches you on at the time it needs to to happen um how do you how do you create music like that without knowing what suffering is you know you, you you have to really know what that is. But it's just that the problem is, is if, you, if you think you have to remain there permanently, you know, like constantly looking for, uh, you know, discontent and you know, suffering and then your friends suffer and your partner suffers. And yes. it, it's just it's just find a way to, to, you know, if you have to go there to, to be creative and maybe to, to figure something out, but you don't stay there. You, you've got to find, you've got to get a way back. Otherwise you, you do end up being completely ripped apart. What can you say about a life like that? You know, horrendous, but, but then on the, on the other hand, one of the most incredible um, attributes human beings have, and you see this everywhere, is, is how we turn negatives into positives in that way. We can, we can take through our own personal filter, and people do it at all sorts of levels. You know, that you take, look at Louis Armstrong, who was, who was born to a, possibly a prostitute mother, didn't, I don't think he knew who his father was, sent to a waste home, they put a corner in his hands at a certain age, and this man went through all this, you know, deprivation and struggle and, 
emotional uh, vacuum as well to, to to change the face of music and to be the most a most beautiful shining light in music that's probably that's ever been. If you look at Louis Armstrong perform, performing now, like in the twenties and thirties, can you imagine anybody shining on a stage more than that? I mean, it's just uh, you think of what he went through to arrive at that place, and and that and Louis Armstrong, I, I still believe this to this day, is the most transformative figure in the twentieth century of music because he completely transformed you know popular music that was that was what was happening before Louis Armstrong and then it then it happened afterwards and, and he influenced everybody musically um completely transformed it but like what that's that's what we can do as human beings if we if we're in a certain mindset other or the other way is to be suffering and think you're suffering and then drown your sorrows take drugs and suffer and end up you know like a mess because you think that's how you arrive at creativity it's not you know I don't think it is yeah. No, no. Well, there's a lot more discipline in creativity than people like to believe. I think that's one of the things that's always interesting about non-musicians or artists or non-writers, people outside actually think that, you know, we, we, we have to be locked in a garret to do anything effective. But in fact, um, it's back to the whole thing about what you were saying about music college. I mean, you go there and have to learn a lot about discipline of just nailing the craft, because if you can't do it, nobody's going to pay you to do anything. Exactly, yeah. I remember having sort of an epiphany one afternoon when I was at my brother's apartment, you know, flat in uh, Ballam, practicing, and I was practicing, uh, you know, maracas, um, castanets, triangle, and you know the, the way they play tambourine and classical music with the skin, you had to, you know, and I was, I was practicing for hours, and I suddenly had this realization, this is not what I want to be doing. <laughs> in my life. It was taking so long, you know, to be in the college, I only go to college and practice piano upstairs, you know, the practice rooms upstairs and practice temp, temps. And uh, it was just, I suddenly realized, you know, I'm spending hours doing things that, that you know, and that was maybe about six months before I left and, and the, the band happened at the same time. But uh, but it was, yeah, the, the amount of work involved just to play a triangle properly is just immense. So it's like, like uh, I have so much respect for those. And I used to love it actually being like maybe the fifth percussionist, not having much to do, because I would look around the orchestra and see these amazing musicians who come through maybe from the age of five or six or something, they'd be playing and, and they're, you can hear these amazing sounds they're producing. It was quite quite something. And I have a, a even as a rebellious twenty one year old or whatever. I was, you know, it's incredibly respectful of that attitude towards music making, the discipline. But I, I knew I I couldn't apply that to all those things they were asking me to do. I could apply it to the drums, you know, but not 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 to the castanets. I tell you what, I think the other thing, Alison, was like you know about because I was very lucky growing up with that music, but also going to a college like that and and seeing these geniuses arriving, you know, because I was I was so far down, you know, the you know artistically or, or ability wise down the pecking order. You see these wonderful soloists, which just it was so humbling, and we had a lot of humility. There was no, but by the time I left the academy, any sense of semblance of ego and arrogance had left me because I knew where I was in the grand scheme of things and I was going to do the best I could with what I had, you know. But it was just knowing that a Beethoven existed, knowing Sibelius existed, knowing, you know, you know, you know, it was just, I just, I was fully versed in this, what could take place in the world, even even from before that. When I, when I was a kid, my um, very young kid, my, my uncle Rowley taught French in the Congo for the United Nations. And he, he came back, I think I was probably eight when he came back, and he had all these, these recordings from the Congo he recorded on this Nagra, the field recorder. And he had some of the most, uh, I think the the greatest griot in West Africa, Kelimonson Djabate at the time, who was like, when he arrived at Radio, you know, Mali Airport, it would be like, you know, like the Beatles, you know, he was so famous. And he had, I, I was hearing that music as well from an early age. I was hearing these tapes. 
and my my my, my uncle telling me the, the history of the people. I've still got I've still got the translation, the Sunjata Fasa over here that my uncle made from the recording that the Kelimons on Jabba did for him one night. Um, so I grew up with this idea of greatness, um, and never had that in me to that I was ever you know. So I, if, if I had you know when I used to meet these pop musicians who had like. And number one, and, and I did meet a lot of incredibly arrogant people. I have to say, no names mentioned. But I just look at them. I look, I look at them. You know, you don't know these people are out there. These this greatness is out there. It, you know, you must be aware that what you're doing. Well done. Hats off. You got a number one. But come on, you know, uh, let's let's not let's not lose our stuff over this because this is this is. You don't want to be getting big headed about something like that. You know, come on. You know. So I think that was a great leveler as well for all of us just to, to realize that we were. Uh, you know, to not get out, out of order with our egos. You know that there was a. You know, I knew that there was a Mozart out there. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, that was a very important aspect of it as well. Fascinating. Well, um, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you, Phil. And I must say, um, it's extraordinary to hear the different strands of everything that you've had to do in your career. And we're looking forward greatly to hearing your boxed set when you come out of lockdown. <laughs> um, we hope it's a ten a ten disc box set, by the way which doesn't mean that I, w- I want us all to be locked down for 10 months, but hopefully you can work quickly. Um, well, we, have, we have an album coming out. That will do me for starters. And then, then we'll, see, we'll see how we go from there. And what are you, what are you calling the album? Because we're all going to rush out and buy it, obviously. Well, when it's really – it's actually Beautiful Wounds. and um, called Beautiful Wounds, yeah. And I think it's probably the last album I make like this where, where it's got this kind of song structures in that way. I think I'd like to try something different. But I'm really proud of it. And, and my brother, who I sadly lost a year ago, actually was as a track he played on. So it's very, very, very moving to to know that he made a contribution to this. Actually, to be honest, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do is mix that track because <laughs> we had to, we, we had to go through the guitar takes and and and. But you know, we did him justice, and he sounds amazing. You know, so it's kind of very. I'm very, very pleased. Uh, very pleased with the sonics of it. But I feel like, yeah, if we get ahead of steam on this, then maybe I can do another one straight away. Just get on a roll and and, and uh, just, just, yeah, there'll be a lockdown album for sure. <laughs> <laughs>